0: The scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Jesus said, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will be they convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection.
1: Gracious God, we ask now that you would meet us here, however we walk into this room or have opened up our computers or televisions and watching online, whatever the case may be with us, you see us, you know us. Help us to believe that. Help us to believe the good news that you, oh God, whose name is love, is eternally seeking us right now in compassion, not judgment. And that you, Lord Jesus Christ, are the physical embodiment of that God who comes to us and calls us by our name. Beloved, give us grace to believe this today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. Another encouraging reading from Scripture. When she finished, I didn't hear an enthusiastic, thanks be to God. (laughs) These parables are challenging. We've been looking at them all summer in this series of parables called Tell it slant, and this is a role reversal story. It's one that we find a lot. It's a—I'll date myself here—but we all kind of like these kinds of stories in many ways, where everything is reversed. You know, who doesn't? I'm going to date myself by saying this, but who doesn't love the movie Trading Places? Huh? Have you seen this? I mean, it goes back in the early '80s. Still worth watching, all of you who were born in the early '80s. Um, But yes, fantastic film. Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy, all of that. Um, seeing Aykroyd's character devolve into rags while Murphy ascends to riches, it's a blast. Um, and it should surprise no one then that Jesus uses this basic storytelling device as well. This ancient tale had become one repeated in rabbinic writings up until the time of Jesus. In fact, it was, this was an already existing Jewish folk tale with at least seven versions of it that we know of in rabbinic writings. So imagine, if you will, the original audience saying, oh, he's telling that folktale. He's, he's, he's repeating that thing we've heard already when Jesus starts to tell it. So Jesus is using an ancient, well-known role reversal story to make a point. And it's actually in response to something our reading left out. I have to go back to verse 14 to find it, where it says, the Pharisees were lovers of money, heard all this, and they ridiculed him. And so this parable is coming in large part in response to that. Therefore, and hear me loud and clear now, it would be ludicrous to build a theology of the afterlife off of this parable. And it would be an adventure in missing the point. I don't have time in this sermon to correct all the unbiblical understandings people have of hell complete with eternal conscious torment for those who haven't prayed a prayer just the right way. I don't know about you, I was raised in that kind of an environment and it made me crazy. As a kid growing up, literally really tormented me. And I think it's horrible theology. When we read the sermons of the apostles in the book of Acts, for example, appeals of how to go to heaven and not hell when you die are completely missing. They're not there. Their gospel was an audacious announcement that the world has a new Lord. A new king, a new emperor, the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth. And their invitation was to believe this joyful announcement, to turn from the destructive ways of sin and be baptized into this new world where Jesus is Lord. And so most modern day understandings of hell, especially from a more conservative viewpoint, I think have more to do with Dante uh, and medieval age cosmologies uh, than it does what the, the Bible actually says. So this parable is not a reconnaissance report on what hell is like. So, that isn't it, then what is it? It's a number of things, and a lot of different ways I could go with this right now. But here's where I landed as I prepared this week for this sermon. It points out to us the danger of becoming indifferent. The danger of becoming indifferent, for starters. Of being blind to what you know should be what you, know, what you should know to be true, and to the great needs of those around you. See, the rich man is blind to what his own religious tradition has to say. The law and the prophets of the Jewish tradition are clear on how people are to use their wealth, whether they have a lot or whether they have a little. Deuteronomy reminds us that since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, God commands you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. And then in Leviticus instructs that if any of your brothers fall into difficulty and that their means falter, you should support them and they shall live with you. If any of your brothers fall into difficulty, you shall support them. So the problem here is not that this man is rich. The problem is that he is completely blind, not only to his own identity, but to also Lazarus' identity. And this is so germane to the cultural moment that we're in. Think about it with people who are identifying as Christians who have completely forgotten some of the most basic parts of our tradition. Love your neighbor. (laughs) Sacrifice for one another. As Paul says in Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And we can't get people who say they worship Jesus, to wear a mask when it's needed. I'm just going to say that to voice the frustration. To voice the frustration. So, the rich man is most obviously blind to the poor at his doorstep as well. So notice that in this history of the rich man, he has no name. He's just called the rich man. But the destitute poor Sores covering his body, dogs licking his wounds, person has a name, Lazarus, which means God helps. He's named in this story. Maybe the rich man is learning his name for the first time. Maybe he tossed the man an occasional coin. Maybe he theorizes about what kind of poor Lazarus is, lazy poor or deserving poor. That is not, however, the kind of seeing that Jesus calls us to. We're to see better than this. To see is to risk the vulnerability of relationship. To see is to risk the vulnerability of relationship, of kinship, of solidarity. To see is to put aside forever all questions of worthiness and recognize in the bleeding other my own face, my own fractured dignity, my own pain, my own mortality. So what's implied here is that places in the kingdom are not given out according to what we have, but according to what we give away. He who made a name for himself but didn't care enough to share his wealth has no name anymore. He's just the rich man. And so who are you, to turn this parable around and to challenge us, who are you not seeing right now? That's a good kind of internal inventory question to ask who am i not seeing right now you know maybe it's maybe it's your children if you have kids maybe it's your roommate maybe it's the coworker that could sure use encouragement who are you not seeing right now How has wealth or privilege or status or self-obsession or capitalism and its demand that you earn, 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 or narcissism and its demand that you be comfortable, how have any of those kinds of things made you blind to the poor, to the marginalized, to those who don't have enough? Do you have times, as you look back on your life, do you have times where you've realized that you were not seeing someone? I'd been speaking at a youth camp back in the early 90s. It was part of the way I paid the bills in those days. <laughs> Somehow, my transportation back to my family involved me getting on a Greyhound bus from Atlanta—excuse me, from Augusta, Georgia, to Atlanta, Georgia—and I was completely exhausted. I just wanted to be left alone. So I plopped my backpack on the seat next to me as a signal to everyone stay away, (laughs) tired person. (laughs) And I pulled out a book and I put it in my face. And I thought we were going to pull out of that bus station and I was going to have the whole aisle to myself. But just as we were about to leave, on steps a woman with a large dog because she's blind. She walks down the aisle, and I just want you to know, there are empty seats everywhere. But she walks down the aisle, stops at my seat, and says, is anyone sitting here? Of of course she did, right? So I said, yeah, get out of here. No, I didn't say that. I said, uh, (laughs) I made room for not only the person sitting next to me, but now also a large dog stuffed underneath her chair. Not wanting to talk, I held my book back up to my face and started reading But she could not see any of my signals, so she started talking. And reluctantly, I listened, (laughs) but soon it wasn't reluctant. She was traveling to Sparta, Georgia, she told me, to care for her elderly sick parents. She and her sisters take turns caring for them. She told me that a few of her siblings had died when they were young, and that while she didn't die, she went blind from scarlet fever that ravaged through their little ramshackled poor community where poor black folks like her lived. She said, there was a white doctor from Augusta who heard about our plight. He was the only white man to ever visit our community, and he saved us with good medical care. I'll never forget that man. He saved my life. I live every day grateful I'm alive, and it's my privilege to care for my parents. And yes, I can do this very well blind. She was reading my mind because I was wondering, can you really do this? (laughs) She saw me more than I could see her. I was in the presence of a great human being who knew suffering like I couldn't imagine and yet was much happier than me. I didn't want to see her, but she, in her own way, made me see her. And by the time her stop came along, I didn't want her to leave. She asked me what I did as she was preparing to get up. So I told her I was a pastor, normally a conversation buzzkill. She asked me what I did. I said I was a pastor. She asked me what my name was, and I told her Fred Harrell. And she stood up, and she said, well, Reverend Harrell, My name is Magnolia Lyons, and I reckon I'll see you in heaven. And she walked off the bus. Who else am I not seeing? Who are you not seeing? How might we see better? Here's what Debbie Thomas wrote about seeing. She says, to see Lazarus, the rich man needs to recognize his own complicity in the poor man's suffering. He used to admit that his own inability to say, I have enough, I have more than enough, I have more than enough to share, is directly responsible for Lazarus's poverty. Or, can we press even harder? Maybe the rich man needs to understand that his incapacity to grieve and rage for Lazarus is a fatal sign of his own impoverishment. An impoverishment so total that no amount of linen, purple cloth, or fancy food can remedy it. This is radical seeing. It's the kind of bold, courageous, and sacrificial seeing that scares us to death. Precisely because it asks so much of us. It asks everything of us. And well, good grief, who among us signed up for everything? You know, as I thought about how I don't see people, even just think about that story, it's almost always just a lack of curiosity. A lack of curiosity about what's happening or what has happened in your own story. A lack of curiosity about why things are the way they are. The rich man had lost curiosity about others. Danielle Mayfield, in her book, The Myth of the American Dream, points out this. She says, the Latin root of curiosity means cure, cure which makes me wonder if it isn't a way to heal some of our oldest sicknesses. Curiosity helps me pay attention to what I might otherwise want to miss. For some, the good news of the American dream feels like bad news. I live in neighborhoods where I see the evidence of it everywhere. Payday loan companies and fast food joints abound. But there are no green parks or community centers or apartments that are affordable to people working full-time at minimum wage. Curiosity helps me flip the question upside down. What would good news for my lower-income neighbors feel like for me? Would it just possibly feel a bit like bad news to me in the beginning if I wasn't used to a truly equitable world? Curiosity. But even in this Place Hades, which was understood as kind of a neutral abode of all the dead, where these are both located. The rich man still treats Lazarus like someone beneath him. Have you noticed that? Privilege just clings to him. He piously calls on Father Abraham, but he refuses to see Lazarus as anything other than an errand boy. Bring me water. Go warn my brothers. He did not see him as more than an extension of himself and his own needs. Particularly at the end. If he had seen him for all that Lazarus was, once an infant. In a boy. And a brother, perhaps. Or a husband, or a father, or a grandfather. If he had seen him as one with hopes and hurts and dreams and disappointments. If he had seen him as one who is beloved by God, then perhaps the story would have ended differently. Because as theologian Chance the Rapper says, everybody's somebody's everything. Everybody's, somebody's everything. No wonder Abraham tells him that the chasm separating the two realms is too great to cost. It's like to cross. It's like Abraham is saying to him, your name doesn't buy anything here anymore. And let's be clear, God is not the one who builds the chasm. We do that all by ourselves. The rich man doesn't ask Father Abraham for a place at Abraham's banquet table, sitting with his poor brother named Lazarus, because he doesn't see him as his brother. While reading this parable, particularly this part where Abraham continues to treat Lazarus as less than, I was reminded of a story of someone named Jordan Anderson. Jordan Anderson, spelled J-O-U-R-D-A-N, was a slave in Tennessee. And the Union Army liberated his town. He escaped the terror of slavery and fled north to Dayton, Tennessee, uh, Dayton Ohio. Just after the Civil War, his old master wrote him a letter asking him to consider coming back to work for him. Now that's rich, right? (laughs) What is richer is the letter the slave wrote to that master, which, thanks be to God, has been preserved because it was printed in the Cincinnati commercial by the abolitionist employer of Jordan Anderson. He was cordial in his response thanking his old master for remembering him, etc. And then he said, and this is just a little clue that's about to heat up, he says, now if you were right write and say what wages you will give me, I will be better able to decide whether it would be to my advantage to move back again. That's just the start. He goes on to say, we, meaning he and his wife Amanda, have concluded to test your sincerity by asking you to send us our wages for the time we served you. This will make us forget and forgive old sores and old scores and rely on your justice and friendship in the future. I served you faithfully for 32 years and Mandy 20 years at $25 a month for me and $2 a week for Mandy. Our earnings would amount to $11,680. Add to this the interest for the time our wages have been kept back and deduct what you paid for our clothing and three doctor's visits to me, pulling a tooth for Mandy, and the balance will show what we are in justice entitled to. Please send the money by Adams Express in care of V. Winters Esquire, Dayton, Ohio. If you fail to pay us for faithful labors in the past, we can have little faith in your promises in the future. We trust the good maker has opened your eyes to the wrongs which you and your fathers have done to me and my fathers and making us toil for you for generations without recompense. Here I draw my wages every Saturday night, but in Tennessee there was never any payday for the Negroes any more than for the horses and cows. Surely there will be a day of reckoning for those who defraud the labor of his hire. Now that's that's a sermon right there. (laughs) Zing! But here is the very best, most delicious part the postscript. P.S. Say howdy to George Carter and thank him for taking the pistol from you when you were shooting at me. <laughs> That's just classic. My daughter would tell me that what he was doing was securing the bag. <laughs> oh, wow. So here's the warning. Here's the warning of the parable, really. And it's summed up so nicely by Melissa Bain Severe. She said, No matter our social and financial status, we all have responsibility for the other. A cautionary tale. This parable pushes us to see and hear the suffering of the poor and to cross that enormous gulf that exists between people, between communities, to see the poor and the sick as people with names, not just some jumble of faces, to name the injustices and illnesses they deal with, And there it is, to reach out while we're all still living because it is the only chance we have to try and make things right. So how do we avoid a life like the rich man's? A life that sits under the judgment of God, however God redemptively brings about God's justice. Two words come to mind. Gratitude and solidarity. If we are going to avoid the life of the rich man, gratitude and solidarity will be two of the things that help us get there. Back to Daniel Mayfield's book, she not that I'm going to throw up another quote, but in the book she talks about an indigenous scientist and writer named Robin Wall Kimmerer who visited a school on the Onondaga Reserve in New York where every day the students recited something called the Thanksgiving Address. A very old and long and beautiful poem that starts their school every day. And the prayer takes its time. It thanks various parts of the earth. Water, wind, fire, plants, and so on. Animals. At the end of each section, there's a time to invite the listener to agree. To come back to the mutual understanding. We give thanks to the stars who are spread across the sky like a jeweler. And then the prayer says... With our minds gathered as one, we send greetings and thanks. Now our minds are one. That's how they start the school day. She writes about the importance of those words, both the thanking of specific elements and the refrain, now our minds are one. Kimberer calls it a statement of solidarity, a bill of responsibilities, that is all couched in gratitude. Kimmerer believes true gratitude is couched in reciprocity where each person, human or not, is bound to each other in a reciprocal relationship. The capacity for gratitude is among our gifts, she says. So a life of generosity... Marinated in gratitude and thanksgiving that embraces the responsibility of solidarity is the path of liberation that Jesus is inviting his original audience on and us as well to take. Each time I reach into my pocket to give money away to those in need on our streets, I can hear voices telling me you shouldn't give that person money. They're going to spend it irresponsibly. And I counter in my head that when I give away that money, I don't just do it for them, if I'm honest, but for my own soul as well. So I cannot afford to ignore them. I can't afford to pretend I don't see Lazarus at my gate. Jesus teaches us that ignoring Lazarus is the road to the hell of a tormented soul and i'll take a hard pass on that but we're hard-hearted aren't we and we're hard-headed at least i'll just speak for myself (laughs) and that's why i'm grateful that jesus can do what abraham cannot jesus our vulnerable servant king crosses over the great chasm again and again and again and even right now, offering us a way forward, a way of selflessness, a way of sacrifice, a way of losing our lives in order to gain them. The rich man and his brothers, he's worried about. They have everything they need to repent to change their thinking. They have Moses and the prophets. Additionally, we have parables like this and the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. We have the Holy Spirit teaching us in her ever so transformative way. We have everything we need to repent. You know what that, way, that word means? Just think differently. That's what it means. Whenever Jesus says repent, think of it saying that. Turn around in your mind, think differently. And when we do that, we find grace. And we offer healing to the world. And so this challenging parable comes to us today. And I think it provokes us to ask God for help. To ask God for grace. To ask God to continue God's work in our lives of creating ridiculously generous people. However that plays out for you. And so may God give us grace to take inventory of our lives today with this parable. May we have the courage to apply this to however the shoe fits for us. Because God aims to repair the world through you, alongside you, with you, And so let us go and learn what this provocative parable means. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for these parables, for the way that they push us, provoke us, and demand of us that we reflect and that we think about how we're thinking and begin to see the world in a new way. And so help us today, wherever we may be, in processing this. Help us to see those around us in new and life-giving ways. Help us to listen when someone wants to tell us their story. Help us to see ourselves in this community as being in mission with you so that everyone has enough. So that everyone can know more deeply your great love for us so that everyone can hear you call us by our names. Beloved, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.